one of the primary benefits you can get from building on top of a platform is that that platform has some existing distribution. And I think it's the case today that in, in crypto, there aren't a ton of protocols that have very, very strong network effects. That's in part, I think two reasons. One is you could argue, well, maybe these protocols just don't have market fit. Another reason may be that because users have control or ownership of their identity, their money and their data, protocols are less defensible. They don't have the same network effects that platforms in Web2 have because those Web2 platforms control your identity, your money and your data. And you can't move it as easily between protocols. So, so it may be the case that you know, because users are more empowered in Web3, protocols have fewer network effects and therefore there's more competition, which is not necessarily a bad thing, right? More competition is better for end users. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the Boundless Conversations podcast. On this podcast, we meet with pioneers, thinkers, and doers, and we talk about the future of business models, organizations, markets, and society in this rapidly changing world. Today, I'm alone, uh, uh, but uh, uh, I'm also with uh, a fantastic guest for today. I've been looking forward to this conversation for uh, many years, I would say. We tried to set this up. I'm more than excited to have on the podcast a legend of Web3, now a founder and general partner at Variant, which is an early stage crypto fund investing in user-owned internet startups. And Jesse was previously program director at Crypto Startup School, one of the most iconic uh, learning and acceleration programs for startups in crypto and Web3. And uh, I would say also a pioneer of blockchain use cases uh, earlier on with uh, Media Chain Labs, later acquired by Spotify. Uh, welcome to the podcast, Jesse Walden. Thank you so much. Yeah, I'm really glad to be here uh, after, after many years trying to make it happen. First uh, question, I, I think for me, is the, the elephant in the room, let's say. I've been thinking about this recently, especially because uh, I was reading uh, your colleague uh, Lee Jin's uh, recent uh, post where she wrote that the major problem in crypto is uh, product market fit and not UX, which uh, kind of resonated with me. And also recently, I, I was looking at, at Twitter and I saw that uh, Jason Calacani said this uh, Tweet said, you know, basically after all this year, Web3 really didn't deliver its promise. It's just about financial um, money and, 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 and uh, transferring money and financial services. Uh, after all this year, uh, why uh, the question, uh, why should I build on chain is still the hardest question to answer. And uh, what's your answer at the moment? Mm -hmm. Yeah, uh, it is. It is. I think right now a challenging time for, for anyone thinking about building in the space to, to answer that question. To me, the answer is, is very simple though. And, and that th th I think the key idea is that, that crypto enables people to own a piece of the internet for the first time. It's never been possible to have digital ownership that is, entitles you to the same sort of rights and responsibilities as ownership in, in the physical world. And that changed with Bitcoin, right? Where for the first time you could own a digital asset, a financial asset, independent of any third party, just like you can in, in the physical world. And of course that became more of a design space with the advent of smart contract platforms like Ethereum, which allowed developers to program these digital assets and new ownership experiences. And so, 
to me, that is a very fundamental shift in the way that the internet works or, or what is possible to build and why I think building on-chain continues to be one of the most interesting um, and sort of fruitful spaces to keep exploring. Normally, we, we uh, connect this idea of user-owned networks uh, with uh, governance tokens, you know, mm. mainly. You know, we, mm -hmm. we, we tend to think that uh, people own the network by owning piece of the governance tokens and being able to participate to the governance. I would like to ask you maybe to extend this idea of ownership. So, of course, user-owned networks, user-operated networks, uh, it's much different than platform-centralized networks. Uh, mm -hmm. So what, what do you mean with user-owned? What, what are the facets of ownership? Right. Yeah, that's a great question because I think the concept of a, of a user-owned platform is one manifestation of the idea of, of digital ownership, right? Like being able to own a piece of the product, products and services you use every day, very compelling idea and, and one that we're interested in. However, I think the, the design space of ownership is, is much broader. And, you know, what we look for in investments is new products, new networks where ownership is a keystone of the user experience. And that could mean platform ownership. But it could also mean owning a piece of digital media, for example, right? Like owning an image, a video, a song, owning a membership pass, owning an access pass or something like that. And all of this is newly possible, again, because of this concept of being able to own your digital stuff, own your identity um, that crypto enables. And so we think that there can be many, many types of products and, and platforms built, some of which can be owned and operated by users, Other, others where ownership is a keystone of the user experience. And so, you know, coming back to your question, I think, you know, governance and control is, is one type of um, experience that can be built into, own, you know, an owner, ownership or an asset, but not the only one. And we're excited to see the, the full design space explored. So if I understand well, you mean sometimes you don't need to own a right to govern a particular interface or platform itself, but it's enough that uh, somehow you uh, own your assets or own your identity to already shift the balance of power that have been characterizing the last 20 years, you know, where platforms were monopolies of power, right? When people mm -hmm. couldn't really relate much with the platform owner. So that's an interesting point. So uh, to, to continue like that, I know I, I would like to ask you to maybe jump into another core concept that you seem to be very interested in. And I uh, reconnect with your recent uh, uh, conversation at uh, the Summer Protocol that we shared as a guest lecturer. And you spoke about this idea of complete contracts versus incomplete contracts. Uh, mm -hmm. So maybe it's, good, it's a good idea for me if you can explain quickly why you feel like complete contracts are different from, uh, I mean, that's more a definition. Complete contracts are different from incomplete ones and why uh, they are relevant for the Web3 space. And I can riff with that later. The, the concept of incomplete contracts is, is actually, is, is not mine, but um, belongs to the economist Oliver Hart, who is a Nobel Prize winning economist. He wrote this great paper on incomplete contracts and control. And the quote from that paper that stuck with me 
is, quote, all but the simplest contracts are incomplete. So the, the key idea is that in a contract, you cannot anticipate every possible outcome or set of actions that the, con you know, the contract is to govern, given the complexity and dynamism in the world. And, and so like a very, an example I always come to is you enter into a contract with a plumber to fix your sink. And it seems to be a very simple, straightforward thing. You fix my sink, I pay you. But what happens if there's an earthquake? The contract doesn't anticipate that, probably, maybe, mm -hmm. right? That's what's behind this idea of all but the simplest contracts are incomplete. So, so why, why is this applicable to crypto? Well, in, in crypto, we have this new thing called smart contracts, which essentially are, are you know, just software that, that runs on blockchains and specifies if-then statements, much like a legal contract would. What's amazing about blockchains is they automate the running of, of these smart contracts such that anyone in the world can kind of trigger them to run and, and, and they run permissionlessly. This is a very exciting and, and sort of profound new capabilities. You can run a piece of software um, without any third party in control of it. But the corollary is that that piece of software, it needs to kind of specify exactly what, it, what it's going to do. In, in as many sort of circumstances as possible. You know, a simple example in the real world would be a vending machine, right? A vending machine has got some software running. If you put in a quarter, it gives you the M&Ms, right? There's a very simple contract and it's kind of complete. Put in the quarter, get, get the M&Ms. That's a complete contract, as close to it as you can get. In the context of blockchains, I think the corollary is that smart contracts have to be kind of, they have to be fairly simple or else they have to be, they're, in, they're going to be incomplete. And when a contract is incomplete, this is true both in the physical world and in blockchains, you need to rely on some outside authority to figure out how, what to do when the contract hasn't specified how to address a dynamic situation, right? So this is where governance comes into play. In the case of legal contracts, you know, when something is not specified in the contract, you fall back to the court system or the legal system where there is one. In the case of mm -hmm. blockchains, the question is, what do you fall back to if, if a smart contract is not completely specified and requires some dynamic input over time? That's like the concept of, of incomplete contracts and why I think it's relevant to crypto. And I'll pause there. You know, we can go in a number of directions, probably. Yeah, no, but I, I mean, I think that this is also one of the original questions that I always said about uh, Web3. It, it seems to imply um, a certain transition of state, let's say, between the uh, institutional economy where you have third parties that uh, grant uh, that uh, agreements are fulfilled and can intervene in case the agreements are not are not fulfilled, like courts, for example, and uh, instead, you know, um, a stage where people uh, interact in uh, and engage in agreements that uh, somehow they they accept that uh, uh, won't be mediated by an institutional intervention. Right? We've been talking about this a lot. You know, software is 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 slow, right? And essentially, to some extent, you know, the point that I'm raising here is. Maybe the, the core question around why you should build on chain cannot be answered in the institutional world. 
it needs to be answered in into the in the post institutional world. So, so in a world mm. where we to some extent we transcend uh, the concept of the economy, regulated economy, and and, and uh, uh, economy subject to, to central government policy and so on. So um, how much do you do you think that uh, um, the real potential of smart contracts and of these digital infrastructures that are deliberately uh, you know post national post-industrial to some extent, can, can be fulfilled uh, in the current context? Because my, my question to clarify is, mm. it looks like you, if, if you try to stay in the uh, traditional agreements and traditional economy and you do smart contracts, it's like you are doing things twice because you know, there is already a legal framework that protects you in, in traditional contracts. So why doing smart contracts then? You know, it's like you're doing things twice uh, and instead, you know, in, in a space where there is no legal framework that can, you know, ensure that the agreements go as, a, as agreed, there is where smart contracts will be needed. That has been my, my feeling sometimes. What, what do you think about that? In, in the full span of time, blockchains will both unlock sort of new kind of economic and organizational arrangements that weren't possible before and subsume the sort of institutional regulated economy as well. But I think the latter will happen much later on. And I think that the internet itself is, is a good example of why that's the case where the internet emerged in a very bottom up way, right? In, you know, people in chat rooms and forums, right? Eventually you had America online and you know, it was individuals and consumer led adoption. And eventually, large enterprises came online and started using the internet for things that they were doing previously. Like for example, a good example is DocuSign, right? Like mm -hmm. big companies use DocuSign to execute legal contracts that they would have been faxing or mailing or whatever before. So all of that stuff happens. This is a technology that like the internet is going to underlie all of the world's economic value. But I think the, what, what's most exciting to us is the new economic value that it can create in a bottom-up way, as opposed to the, the institutional sort of adoption. And to, to bring this back to the concept of incomplete versus complete contracts, I think what's exciting to us is that it is possible right now to use smart contracts to create new networks and marketplaces that are kind of like fully specified and, and fully automated. And a good example of this to make it concrete is, is something like Uniswap, right? Which is a venue to trade tokens on Ethereum that has no governance whatsoever. The, the, the contract specifies, you know, exactly what is to happen when a party wants to trade token A for token B. And in the sense, it's very much like a vending machine. Coming back to the earlier example, you put one token in and you get a certain number of tokens out. Um, mm -hmm. So it's simple. But even in its simplicity, it's able to drive billions and billions of dollars of, of transaction volume, right? So this is a, you know, a fundamentally new type of marketplace that was not possible before smart contract blockchains in, in that this marketplace can operate in a, in a totally autonomous way without any third party control. Um, and, and, and that's because blockchains enable these kind of complete contracts to run permissionlessly. That's an example of a new thing, new market, new network that is expand. It expands the pie of what's possible, and we we like to invest in those things. However, as as mentioned, I would expect that 
over time, there's going to be a, a broader spectrum of, of things that happen on chain, including traditional company formation, right? That can be sort of marginally improved by the transparency and sort of automation that smart contracts bring. So that's more like the DocuSign example, right? Where you're automating certain processes and flows um, using the technology. So we're interested in the full spectrum, but especially interested in the complete contracts because that's the net new thing that we think is the bottom-up mm -hmm. innovation today. This interest for complete contracts is more like an interest for simple things, like simple, super scalable things. Like, uh, you know, there is this uh, definition of hyperstructures that uh, has been thrown uh, around a lot uh, recently. Mm -hmm. But, you know, I still have some questions. For example, you know, why you couldn't achieve something like Uniswap in traditional software? You know, probably traditional mm -hmm. software is faster than smart contracts. It's uh, more, more it's cheaper than smart contracts. But still, the value that people have been uh, finding in, in Uniswap, I think my impression is that it's from uh, its uh, uh, untamperability. So the fact that, uh, you know, reasonably the distribution of... Uh, governance uh, uh, tokens and the way that clients get updated or smart contracts get updated was reasonably telling them no third party can change the rule without you knowing that or something like that, without the community knowing that and accepting that. So there is a somehow a post-institutional idea. Okay. Right, so there right. is a feeling that, uh, yeah, that's not a traditional institution. It's more like a collective institution. So institutional innovation on one side. And on mm -hmm. the other side, I feel like most of the value came from, uh, as you said, permissionlessness mm -hmm. and uh, uh, potentially anonymous, uh, uh, you know, the fact that, that, that it's pseudonymous or anonymous. So these are signals that are very, uh, uh, I would say, I can say very much about institutional innovation. So, so the, the, you know, despite uh, Uniswap, is a lot, there's a lot of money going on, which is a very tangible use case. Mm -hmm. Most of the value is coming from the, these radical elements that are not possible in traditional institutions. That, that's right. And I actually think what you mentioned, it, it's all part of this you know, one continuum, which, which is the fact that Uniswap runs permissionlessly on Ethereum without any central control is, is why, precisely why it is used, right? Because third-party developers integrate Uniswap precisely because they, they know that it is neutral. It, it cannot be pulled out from underneath them. And that's what's mm -hmm. led to its you know, adoption and growth as an exchange protocol. Right, so the fact that it is this complete contract that runs autonomously and permissionlessly is an institutional innovation that creates a lot of value, new value. That's, I think, the, the way it all strings together. Hey. You are listening to this episode on an audio-only version. Get the best of the experience by watching these and other episodes in video on YouTube. Go to YouTube and search for Boundaryless Conversations, or just take your browser and write blss.io slash bcpy, all capital letters, and you'll get there. On YouTube, you'll be able to subscribe to our channel and get notifications when new episodes are released. This leads me to connect with uh, another topic that I wanted to discuss with you, which is uh, the topic of protocols and products. You, know, you have been mm -hmm. writing a lot about protocols and products. Should I build the product, protocol first? The product, uh, you have been wrangling around, you know, 
products, uh, subsidizing the development of protocols and so on. That's also because we were engaging with summer of protocols, you know, because we have this idea that something similar to what happened with Uniswap, so the emergence of a third infrastructure, third space, which is uh, independent from the entities that interact in the space uh, and to some extent uh, uh, can represent a level uh, playing field uh, where everybody can be reasonably sure that their rights are going to be protected, that they, can, they won't be policed out uh, like you know, uh, it happens sometimes with Airbnb or things like that. It's the use case, or at least it's one of the major use cases of, of Web3. So the question that I have at the moment for you is uh, why we haven't seen protocols emerge in spaces which are not, or rather we have seen so little protocols emerge in spaces which is not finance or, or mm. trading of crypto. And I'm talking about you know, protocols in science or uh, supply chains or, you know, we have seen something, but uh, two major things that, uh, that I, I still see and, and I wanted to share with you is first, they are, most of them are corner shop sites very small things, or yeah. especially with respect to Uniswap, which is enormous. And yeah. uh, on the other hand, why we are seeing uh, product developers always reinventing the protocol? And there is a so scarce tendency to build on some other protocol which is already there, even right. if these protocols have shared governance, open governance, they're permissionless, they have this narrative of being open for everybody. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Good question. So maybe I'll start with, with the last question you just asked. Why are, why are developers mm -hmm. kind of building and rebuilding protocols versus building on the work of others? And maybe backing up a sec, I think an important, important thing to touch on is that one of the promises of blockchains is that they're open, they're permissionless. And so in theory, anyone can build on top of the work of others without fear of them sort of pulling out the rug from under them as happened with developers building on top of web two platforms like Facebook and the like. So, so that's the promise. Why hasn't it happened? Well, I, I would argue that for one, it, it has happened in certain instances where the protocols are kind of ossified, meaning they're, they're true permissionless protocols that are not subject to a lot of change. And, and I think I, I, I always use Uniswap as an example because it is the pinnacle, it's the biggest. Right, but but this I think Uniswap is a great example where I think roughly forty percent of the volume in Uniswap is driven by Uniswap Labs front end product, but but that's a minority. Sixty percent is driven by third parties, right, who've integrated the protocol directly, and that they, they've done that because Uniswap is open completely transparent, permissionless, and govern it, it, the governance surface of the protocol is very, very small. So developers have certainty that it's, you know, it's not going to change underneath their feet. And that's sort of what I think is necessary to get developers to build on top of existing protocols. It follows from that line of thought that if a protocol has a lot of governance involved, developers might be more suspect about, about building on top. That's one reason that, that people are rebuilding. I think another reason though is, is network effects, right? So in order for a protocol to be attractive to a third party to integrate, there has to be some benefit to integration versus rolling your own, right? And, and so one of the primary benefits you can get 
from building on top of a platform is that that platform has some existing distribution, right? It has some user base or some, some quality to, to the platform that gives you a competitive advantage to build there versus rolling your own. And I think it's the case today that in, in crypto, there aren't a ton of protocols that have very, very strong network effects. And that, that's in part, I think two reasons. One is you could argue, well, maybe these protocols just don't have market fit, right? They, they just, there's no protocol market fit. They haven't solved a problem. That's, that's one reason. Another reason may be that because users have control or ownership of their identity, their money and their data, protocols are less defensible. They don't have the same network effects that platforms in Web2 have because those Web2 platforms control your identity, your money, and your data. And you can't move it as easily between protocols. So, so it may be the case that, you know, because users are more empowered in Web3, protocols have fewer network effects and therefore there's more competition, which is not necessarily a bad thing, right? More competition is better for end users. So, so yeah, that, I'll, I'll pause there. I think that that's a few reasons why, you yeah. know, um, people are rebuilding. Very, very interesting. Let me just underline a few things. So you said uh, there has been convergence on protocols when these protocols are ossified, slow. They, don't, they tend to not, not to innovate too much, okay? which is mm -hmm. very much resonating indeed with uh, the thesis on hyperstructure, right? Yes. Very slow mm -hmm. to evolve. And especially when I read about hyperstructures, I said, you know, why no DAO? Why no institution behind these things? And now I kind of feel like that that's because they don't evolve, so they don't really need any institutional element because it's like, you know, you build railroads, they just need man, man, maintenance, you know, they don't evolve that much. Mm -hmm. So that's an interesting point. And then on the other side, when you said uh, sometimes uh, people don't see the benefit of using an existing protocol because there are no network effects. And of course, you know, just to clarify to our users, it's, it's very important, interesting when you join a protocol, uh, if you find a lot of people there, a lot of, lot of entities there, you can uh, enjoy network effects, get demand, get suppliers, and so on. Mm -hmm. You said, why we don't have network effects? Because either there's no, mar no product market fit, which would be a good answer, and or because they are less defensible, so there is less possibility to build network effects. Uh, and uh, this is kind of a uh, uh, circular Thing. You know, basically, mm -hmm. uh, the question that raised for me, and, and I'm getting back to you, is so we're never going to build large things which are not super simple on Web3. So the, the, the question for you is, since you, you also wrote about AI a lot in the last few weeks, kind of tells me that Web3 is going to be much more modular and much more diverse yes. than Web2. So AI can help maybe, right? I'm glad you brought up the word modular because that's that's what I was going to say in response to, you know, the provocation mm -hmm. that Web3 is not going to build big things. I would actually push back on that and say, I think Web3 can build networks that are on the one hand, much bigger and more valuable than Web2 networks because they're permissionless and they're autonomous and therefore third parties want to integrate and build on top. Again, Uniswap being the sort of like pinnacle example of this. But it's in order to do that, I think that we, we will get there through modular components being composed. So like Uniswap being composed into a third party application is a, is a good example. I think a lot of, of the experimentation to date has been in trying to build protocols that 
have a lot of surface area, are incomplete, require a lot of governance. And this is problematic because when you have a lot of dynamism in a protocol, but you make decisions through governance by committee, you're de facto slower than you know a Silicon Valley startup that has a CEO with a vision and is, is iterating very, very quickly. Given that competitive disadvantage of, of building uh, a sort of network by committee, the, the better approach is to try to modularize the components of what's needed in, in a given protocol into small pieces that can be shipped and sort of managed independently and, and therefore iterated on more, more quickly to get to this ossification point where they, they are components that can be reused by third parties. And the, the sum of parts, I think, can, can be much greater, right? And we can build networks that are, that are big and valuable, but it has to be done in this kind of modular way. Very interesting because the implications for these are massive. You know, the image that I get is that uh, things are going to become very simple, very modular, okay? And uh, most of them won't be huge, I guess. Most of them may be small products like smart contracts that can be integrated with other things. Like, and so basically as a, as a builder in Web3, you try not to have too much, too big domain mm. of things. So you try to be very small and say, you know, I'm building this thing and then you can use it to compose with other things. But when it, this happens, the ch chances that you have to extract value from something, because you cannot integrate it vertically, you cannot have a very much a number of pieces, a value chain, whatever, you're going to have only one small piece that is going to be integrated by the others. This caters much more for the economics of open source than the economics of Web2, right? So this is very challenging also for investors like you. Another question that I always have, what is the thesis of an investor in Web3 where you cannot extract money from as, as you would from equity because there is this security issue and, uh, uh, you know, sometimes people, uh, companies are very, very skeptical of building or having tokens that, that generate uh, uh, returns, right? Because they are skeptical uh, of being considered uh, securities and, and so on. So that's one thing. Then also you have to build modular things because building large protocols is scarcely affordable. You, you're never going to make it. So what is the real thesis of capital in Web3? Because it seems like it's a space that is very much about efficiency, simplicity, modularity, openness. So how do you extract returns from Web3? Yeah. So let, let me answer this maybe by starting in, in a roundabout way. So I think if you look at the internet itself, it is a stack of modular protocols that do you know, very specific things. Starting at the bottom, you have IP protocol, which is you know specifies how data is to be packaged up and moved across the wire, right, through packets. And then on top of the IP protocol, you have other protocols like SSL, which bring privacy to the packets, which is necessary for like e-commerce and, you know, just a gen you know, general privacy. You have protocols for email, HTTP, SMTP, right? So, so the internet itself evolved in, in a very similar way where you have these modular components the sum of which you know, enables a very rich design space that brought us everything that we know today in, in terms of in, in Web2, right? They all rely on these underlying protocols. So I think there's a parallel there in the potential for Web3. We can build these component protocols that do 
you know, very specific and very useful things that when combined together, enable very rich applications. The difference between these early internet protocols and Web3 protocols is that Web3 protocols are stateful, which is a, this is a technical term, right? Mm -hmm. um, but what, what it means is that the protocols themselves, they hold the, the state or the data of their users. Whereas web, early web protocols do not. They left the maintenance of state to companies who had the incentives to maintain the data. And that's why Facebook, for example, owns all our data today. They maintain the state at the end of the transmission from my computer to their server. So blockchains kind of changed this because they introduced incentives to maintain state, right? So the miners of the Ethereum blockchain and the, the Bitcoin blockchain, whatever, they maintain the state of all the protocols that, that are running on top, which obviates the need for a third party like Facebook. And so there's two points I want to land here. One is that through you know, modular protocols, you can create a really rich design space, a very functional design space that built, enables really big networks to form. But two, the, the way that Web3 works is that these protocols are stateful and the corollary is that they can capture the value of that state in part, uh, whereas Web1 protocols could not. And so, and so coming back to your question, you know, what is our thesis, right? How do, how, as investors, how do we make money investing? We believe that Web3 protocols can step into the flow of the value that they're creating because they're stateful. And therefore, we want to invest in assets that coordinate that state. Right. So in, in, in the very in the simplest case of something like Ethereum, right, which manages the state of all the application protocols built on top, like like Uniswap, we want to invest in ETH, right? Because that's the asset that coordinates that state. I would make the analogy back to a company, you know, in web two, a company like Facebook, the asset that coordinates the state of the Facebook network is a share in Facebook. Right. And so we, we want to effectively own a piece of the networks that control the state of Web3 protocols. Does, does that make sense? In terms, that's our thesis. It makes a sense, but uh, intuitively, um, I must say that uh, you can extract uh, a relatively smaller amount of value from a database than you can from a full integrated vertical platform. Because you know what I'm thinking here is that if we, <clears throat> if we buy the fact that uh, diversity is gonna be much broader, right? There's going to be mm -hmm. much, you know, maybe on the same protocol, you can have a thousand different experiences that cater to mm -hmm. a thousand different niches instead of right. one experience like in Facebook, which right. makes it valuable, let's say, right? So, mm -hmm. you know, the even if you have stateful representation, for example, and you own a piece of that, you're not, not going to have network effects in the verticals, right? Because verticals is going to be niche, much more modular, much more composable and so on. So... The factors that have determined uh, the possibility to, to extract so much value that we have seen in the last 20 years for Web2 uh, are simply not there. I mean, I, I agree with you that it's very important to have a common stateful representation of a, land, of a level playing field. But mm -hmm. I feel like this is going to be a commodity over over long term. And so you cannot extract much value from it. I think So I would agree that you can extract less value. Mm -hmm. But but I would also I would push back and say that while you can extract less, the pie is going to be much bigger because 
you have this mm. large ecosystem of third parties integrating these modular components. And so the sum of all of the parties building on top is greater than any individual one, right? And so you can extract less value at the protocol layer, but the total value flowing through is much greater. And therefore you can still have great investment outcomes. Mm -hmm. Another way of talking about it is that I think protocols have to be minimally extractive. They, mm -hmm. they have to, they will only extract the value that they are able to create for the applications that are integrating on top. If you try to extract more than that, the applications will leave. And we talked earlier about how there's much more competition here in Web3 because these protocols are open and users control their identity, their money, their data, so they can move more fluidly between them. So that's another forcing function for protocols to remain minimally extractive. Yes. That said, they are still creating value. And to the extent that they're only seeking to you know, extract the value that they create, they can be in the flow of it. And the assumption is that the sum of all the integrations on top will result in the protocols having a lot of volume through scale or a lot mm -hmm. of value through scale, even if lower margin. If we agree that, uh, by the way, um, there's going to, to really generate value, you need a lot of convergence, right? So you mm -hmm. need to have large, simple things, basically, you know, you can extract money, a value from the large, simple things and not from the countless modular things that can build on top. Right. Uh, so my impression is that there's going to be less large, simple things. So, for example, when we say, let's say not Uniswap, let's say uh, supply chain coordination. Okay. How yeah. many blockchain supply chain protocols are going to be there? Maybe one or two. Because it yes. simply doesn't make sense to have more than that, right? So right. this is affordance for digital public infrastructure, okay? So it's an affordance for building for the commons, essentially, right? Which mm -hmm. is another way, thing that makes me think that it's going to be hard to extract value because commons are good for essentially give value, right? Produce value for people, but rather yeah. not good for extracting value. And again, when I was thinking about the internet and the example you said you made, uh, I was thinking about uh, Mariana Mazzucato's work, you know, and, and the, the way that she said, uh, you know, the state has innovated with the internet and then the value has been captured by the private institutions. So, so what's your point of view in terms of uh, how this uh, transition from vertical integration and extraction moving into this horizontal large layers that support diversity on top and this kind of uh, affordance for public commons and digital institutions. How is it going to change the whole theory around capital for Web3 age and post-institutional age? So what is your perception? Is capitalism really being challenged to some extent from these new affordances that we have to build these uh, uh, multi-sided, multipolar layers? Uh, what's your feeling? It's a fascinating topic and it's I think what we're seeing is the sort of merging of capitalist incentives, right? Market market incentives, right? The, the, which is, you know, we're we're a venture capital firm. We're yeah. you know we're we're capitalists, right? We're investing for a return, and we're doing that by investing in these networks that we hope will become credibly neutral infrastructure that lots of people want to build on top of, and again, that is minimally extractive, right? Mm -hmm. And so you use the term public good. I think a, a, maybe a better term is club good, which is a good that people pay for, like a toll road. Mm -hmm. You still pay to use it, right? The toll is there 
to fund ongoing operation and maintenance, right? And, and the toll has to be set appropriately to do that so you can cover the cost, right? But, but not be overly extractive, you know, in, a, in the way like a for-profit company would, would be. Setting that toll correctly is where, where you find a sweet spot between public benefit and value creation and the value capture to be able to maintain the service. I think that's maybe more apt of analogy for what we're describing, where you can still have a, an, an investment that makes sense there, right? Um, and an opportunity for uh, to invest early on and, and capture some of the growth in this thing over time, but have that thing sort of run at cost at scale. That's sort of the, the end goal. We think that there's still great investment returns to, to be had there because these networks can grow you know, quite large and, and, yeah. and end up capturing a sliver of the value that they create. So it is, I think, a merger of capitalist incentives with ideas from the, the public sector. Mm -hmm. Maybe it's more that we are, since we are at the start of this transition, no? because we don't have much, many protocols, now you still can, quite, can have a good investment thesis, right? Because there is a lot to build. But maybe in 10 yeah. years from now, it's going to be much more difficult to make money out of these uh, infrastructures, right? I would agree. And, and I think that, yeah, the same is true of, of, of Web2, right? Where, you know, the first 20 years of Web2, say from, you know, year 2000 to, to present, there was a ton of investment and, and kind of like, you know, there's like a handful of major, major successes that came out of that and lots more that failed, right? And I think we're sort of at a similar point where we're at the emergence of this new way of building internet mm -hmm. protocols. And like you said, there will probably be a consolidation to a handful of them that actually are, are widely used and able to capture meaningful value. Mm -hmm. And 20 years from now, they will be ossified, they'll be mature, they'll have very strong network effects, right? And and the, the investment opportunity will be lesser, similar to how- Or, or at least you will have to do much more portfolio work. So invest in tons of things and, uh... Uh, which is a signal that we are already getting from the venture capital market, right? As we see in transition from traditional rounds into something that is much more, much less equity sold, much more uh, longer term operated. So, you know, I think we are mm -hmm. getting the same signals from the VC market. This uh, uh, evolution towards uh, uh, composability and modularity on the market is clear. Okay, we are seeing a lot more modular pieces, smaller projects, more portfolio approaches. And, and uh, you are also excited about AI and especially about the perspective of having AI based on, uh, on zero knowledge systems and uh, that doesn't exploit the data for training, but rather, you know, again, gives ownership back uh, of the models to the people. So what is your okay. thesis about the role of AI in composing products and creating experiences? How is it going to change the landscape in this, uh, given this... Uh, things that we discussed. Yeah, so a, a theme we've been talking about throughout today is, has been automation, right? Smart contracts are an automation innovation, right? Like you, you can now automate the execution of software without any third party running it. AI is obviously also kind of you know, an, an yes. innovation in, in automation. So I think there's a very interesting overlap between the two smart contracts enable you, you know, to specify how a program should want, run, but as we've talked about, contracts is uh, all but the simplest contracts are incomplete. I, I view AI as a way to extend the completeness of what a contract can, can do, right? So you, you can specify in a model, an AI model, how to act, right? And, and, or, or what problem to solve. 
Mm-hmm. And so maybe this intro- introduces sort of a new space where in, you know legal contracts fall back to the legal system and smart contracts fall back to token holder governance. A third option in the future, and, and this I appreciate is kind of potentially a little bit scary, but a third option may be to fall back to you know an, an, an AI agent to, to make some of the decisions mm-hmm. that humans would otherwise have to make. So if, if you have an AI that's capable of making those decisions and trusted to do so, maybe because you can verify the way in which it works, mm. then you can, I think, build contracts that are far more expressive and complex because the, the sort of subjective decision-making that humans would otherwise need to do through the legal system or through the through a governance system can be done very quickly by a machine. In short, I think that AI and smart contracts together broaden the design space of of the types of protocols or applications that can be built because they both are automation innovation. We are seeing that, by the way, no? because uh, I mean, I think it's fascinating to think that uh, you can make a smart contract and at the same time saying uh, an AI, you know, when the smart contract doesn't cover the use case, think respond through these five first principles, like, you know, something like that. And that's a very fascinating right. topic. And we are already seeing these kind of things dripping into product design because uh, when you think about GPTs, the, the latest feature, uh, to some extent, you know, these are roughly specified products where customers, uh, to some extent, accept that uh, uh, the LLM will think about it and respond in ways that are not completely specified. So I think we are developing this yeah. sensitivity of being able to relate with a product in unpredictable ways and giving the products uh, or smart contracts in this case, uh, uh, attributions like personality or, uh, I, don't know, uh, I don't know, political tendencies or something like that. So I think that's a fascinating perspective. So b- before we move into the, the closing, I would like to ask you, we normally often share breadcrumbs with our listeners. And especially I would like to nudge you into beyond the breadcrumbs. If you want to point out uh, from your observation point, uh, what are the new things in this space that people should be really thinking about? I think a big one, and, and this is sort of riffing off of the, the last topic on AI. Um, w- one big theme for us is that if you look at sort of the evolution of computing, um, there's a pattern where new computing innovations tend to emerge in, in couplets and sometimes in triplets. Mm-hmm. So for example, the PC, right? Everyone getting a PC at home and the internet itself kind of happened right around the same time, right? right? The, the internet was first, you know, coming online really in the like 80s, 90s, and, and people were getting really powerful personal computers around the same time. Then we had the advent of mobile, right? And the cloud, right? So cloud computing and mobile computing kind of happened and, and they synergistically reinforced one another because mobiles, mobile phones were you know, not powerful computers and, and cloud computers are very powerful. And so together, the, they pushed each other forward. And today, I think we're seeing kind of an emerging couplet and potentially triplet with blockchain computing, smart contract platforms like Ethereum and, and the like, and uh, zero knowledge cryptography or zero knowledge computing, which is a way of, of, is a technology that enables computation to be verified using mathematics just like blockchains enable computation to, to be verified you know, by a network of very secure machines all over the world. And then there's AI, which is this kind of third leg of, of you know, computing innovation, 
where AI mostly functions in a black box. We have no idea how to verify what the, the AI models are doing, right? We don't mm -hmm. really understand them. I think that there's kind of going to be an interesting convergence of these three things where the verification that blockchains and zero knowledge computing bring applied to you know, AI result in really powerful new, you know, new applications. And we made an investment recently in a company called Modulus Labs, which is trying to do exactly this. They're trying to apply zero knowledge cryptography to AI models to be able to prove what they're doing such that they can be used by protocols and smart contracts um, to extend their, their capabilities. So, so that's a very high level, I don't know, kind of framing of, of something I think is really exciting and where we expect there's going to be a lot of new startups building. Right. Uh, totally agree. Do you want to just um, add a bit to, to the list for the listeners to, you know, if they have an idea or a startup they're working on, if they want to reach out to what you are focusing on with the fund at the moment? Yeah, I would, I would say we're, we're, we're very full stack. And, and, and so our scope, what we're interested in is anyone who's, you know, building a startup in the crypto space or use, using, you know, the technology to, to build infrastructure or applications to reach billions of, of end users. That's the scope. It's pretty broad. You can reach out to me on Twitter, on our website, you know, variant.fun. And yeah, we'd love to talk with anyone building in the space. Jesse, thank you so much. Uh, it was a fantastic conversation. I think we touched all the big points that I had in my mind since a few months. Uh, it was a pleasure to have you. Uh, really thankful. So I hope you also enjoyed the conversation. I did. Yeah, it was great. Great questions. Thank you. Thank you so much. And uh, I mean, I hope our listeners uh, leave the conversation today with a clearer idea of the potential of these technologies and uh, really understand the, why we're talking about a, a, a kind of a state shift in, in thinking about the internet and, and how we build stuff. Uh, and uh, of course, uh, uh, keep an eye on our uh, blog. Uh, you will find all the transcripts from uh, Conversation with Jesse, all the references of the things we, we, we spoke about. And until we speak again, remember to think boundaryless.